I would say our politics is currently less apocalyptic than yours. Well, I'm happy for you. <laughs> That's good news. <laughs> well, if um, the apocalypse comes, you can say we were complacent. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drew. We largely stick to American politics on this podcast, but every so often we've called up our friends at the UK-based podcast Talking Politics to help explain British politics, particularly relating to Brexit. Comparing the two countries has at times helped us better understand what's going on here in the States. Brexit is largely behind us, but in recent months, British politics have hit another uncertain period. News reports revealed that Prime Minister Boris Johnson attended parties in government buildings while Britain was in strict COVID lockdown in 2020. His approval rating has now sunk to a mere 22%, and it's unclear if he'll hang on to his leadership position. That news comes amid other big news out of the UK. After covering an eventful six years in British and American politics, the Talking Politics podcast is winding down. And before they close up shop, I wanted to catch up with them to discuss this latest scandal and also reflect on how the U.S. and U.K. have navigated a turbulent handful of years. So here with me from the Talking Politics podcast and the University of Cambridge are Professor of Political Economy Helen Thompson and Professor of Politics David Runciman. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be back, Galen. Hi. Hello. So, of course, I am sad to hear that you're winding things down, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Let's begin by talking about political scandals and how the public reacts to them. What is it about Johnson's parties at government buildings that have caused the British public to have such a negative reaction? Well, I think the bottom line, if you like, that distinguishes this scandal from other ones is that it involves the relationship of rules between voters and politicians, because it's quite hard to think of of anything. I mean, I suppose paying taxes falls into this category, but it, paying taxes isn't the same intrusion in daily life that lockdown rules um, were. The rules in the United Kingdom during the first lockdown in particular, but considerable extent during the third lockdown as well, were extremely strict. And at the very least, Boris Johnson's attitude towards those rules in regard to how they applied to himself and his immediate colleagues was cavalier. And some might say that he showed a total and utter disregard for the rules that he was telling everybody else to live by. Given that these rules made it very difficult for people to hold funerals with more than a few people when somebody died or to go and to see someone who was in a care home at the end of life, the idea that the rules applied to matters like life and death, and they didn't apply to parties when it involved the Prime Minister. That's not a kind of scandal I think that we've had before, and it touches some, like, not just raw nerves, but some very painful places for many people with their memories of what happened in 2020. David, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I, I also think the difference, because I've, I've been asked this a couple of times, that, I mean, didn't people think that Johnson was a sort of liar and a hypocrite anyway? And why is this struck such a chord because he's a he's a pretty cavalier politician that's part of his selling point but i think the key thing is as helen said he did take these rules seriously in telling us how to behave you know there was no trumpian kind of indication that he he wasn't serious about this stuff or you know it was absolutely he gave press conference after press conference in which he he could have had an opportunity to say not only was he instituting these rules reluctantly, but you know, he was uncomfortable with them. He didn't at all. He he committed to telling us all we had no choice. 
uh, slightly out of character, I have to say. Some of those press conferences, Boris Johnson was not really particularly Boris Johnson. He sounded like a different kind of politician. And that's what's caught him. And he's got nowhere to go now because he did tell us all that this was how we absolutely had to live. We had no choice. And he didn't do it himself. So it, it is the hypocrisy, but it's with, with him, certainly, it's a rare hypocrisy in that most people think the hypocrisy with Johnson is baked in. But COVID forced him into a place where he had to fake sincerity and now he's been caught out. I want to talk a little bit about the approach that Johnson took to COVID restrictions. But before we get to that, I'm interested in the comparison between how Americans and Brits react to political scandals. Because, of course, we're coming off of the Trump presidency, during which the scandal seemed endless. You know, he was impeached twice, once for abuse of power in trying to get the Ukrainian president to investigate his political rival, Joe Biden, a second time for inciting an insurrection in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And then beyond that, there were scandals surrounding all kinds of things, paying little to no federal tax, two dozen allegations of sexual misconduct, not masking when he even had COVID. But his approval rating never came close to being as low as 22%. You know, he was in the low 40s for most of his time in office. So do Brits and Americans just see political scandals differently? And if that is the case, why might it be? First of all, I don't think that we really have approval ratings. I don't think that they mean the same thing. You could have a prime minister who was going to win a a majority in the next election more comfortably than probably Boris Johnson would do if he were to remain as Conservative prime minister. And they wouldn't have a particularly positive approval rating. I think that the US one works in a more binary way, partly because of the way in which the party competition is more straightforwardly binary than it is in the, the UK. I mean, all I would say on the specifics of what's happened to Johnson, the people who he's lost are basically a certain kind of Leave voter, probably those who were most reluctant to vote Conservative in the first place and felt that they were pushed into it um, because it was the only party that was left standing at the end that wanted to implement Brexit to actually take the United Kingdom out of the the European Union. And in that sense, he stood outside the politicians who looked like they weren't taking their vote, the Leavers' vote, seriously. He looked like he was different. I mean, I don't think he ever was different. I think it's just a kind of set of circumstances. But once he articulated a set of rules that everybody was supposed to live by and thought they didn't apply to him, then he just became, in those voters' minds, just like another another politician who didn't tell the truth. And I would say that list that you gave of Trump's misdemeanours, just the sheer length of it, the relentlessness of it, and this may be putting it too simplistically, but the thing that can't be levelled against Trump is that he's a hypocrite in the sense that what you see is what you get. You know, it's not, there weren't those moments where, with the Trump presidency, where you saw behind the mask, behind the scenes, and you thought, my God, this guy is nothing like the public persona. He's just like the public persona. What's caused Johnson so much trouble is on this issue, the public persona and the private behaviour are completely at odds. The public persona was of a serious, sober-minded man trying to project a consistent health message following the advice of the experts. It was not Trumpian. Johnson's COVID press conferences in many ways couldn't have been more different from Trump's COVID press conferences. And it is hypocrisy, not lying, that does for politicians. So with the Johnson story, there are two things going on here. There's the, the attempt to pin him with a lie in the House of Commons, which is a resigning issue, because in the House of Commons, he effectively said that he didn't attend these parties. And now it's turned out that he has. I don't think the public are bothered too much 
about Johnson lying. What they're bothered by is the double standards, and it's the double standards that are fatal. And in this case, you can say many things about Donald Trump. He's not a man particularly troubled by double standards. The standards are consistent, even if you hate them. Are there more incentives in the British system for members of the prime minister's own party to break with them? Because I'm thinking in the American context, there's sometimes little to be gained by breaking with a president from your own party. I mean, maybe if they're already super unpopular. But it seems as though conservative members of parliament have had less of an issue maybe breaking with Boris Johnson. I think that what's certainly true is that British prime ministers, at least since the latter part of the 1960s, have quite frequently got into trouble with their parliamentary parties. But the Conservative Parliamentary Party always had an awkward relationship with Boris Johnson. They wouldn't have chosen him, I think, in any other circumstances than the fact that they were facing existential annihilation in the summer of 2019 after the Conservatives had got only 9% in the European Parliament elections in May um, of that year. And he seemed to be the only possibility. And to be honest, at the time, it didn't even seem like he was a very good possibility for actually being able to take um, the United Kingdom out of the European Union. So in some sense, there was always a, a Faustian pact aspect to it. And so all the doubts that many of them had about Boris Johnson's character, including his attitude towards risk and his attitude towards rules, were were cast aside because there quite literally, I think, was no alternative for the Conservative Party to survive. Once that they have a majority, once that in some sense politically the pandemic has been dealt with, though with some political casualties, I think, for the Conservative Party, then they can return to the doubts that they had. And the problem about this story for Johnson is it, is it fed exactly all those doubts. You know, the obvious difference, of course, is that they can get rid of him, unlike in a presidential system. And they can't... Tory party is slightly caught on this. The members of parliament can't choose his successor. They choose the two candidates who then go to the membership, which complicates things. But it's entirely up to them to get rid of him. If he loses a vote of confidence in the parliamentary party, he's gone. And that creates an incentive for the press, if we call them the press still, to speculate about this possibility. So there is a, there's a dynamic to the news cycle here, which would be absent in the American case, which is the possibility of there being enough letters sent in, 54 they need to trigger a vote of confidence. There's still a sort of gap, I think, between that speculation and the actual event, after all, it hasn't happened yet. And there is a difference between the incentive that conservative politicians might have to encourage the speculation and actually do the deed the Conservative Party has a reputation, in contrast to the Labour Party, of getting rid of leaders, including prime ministers. Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May were both got rid of, and leaders, including a leader called Ian Duncan Smith, was got rid of. David Cameron quit, but they probably would have got rid of him anyway. The Labour Party doesn't do it. So the Tory Party has a sort of reputation for ruthlessness, which I think is slightly oversold. Uh, it doesn't happen that often. It hasn't happened yet. It took a long time to get rid of Theresa May. Thatcher is really the outstanding example. And so I think there is still a gap uh, between the talking about the deed and the doing of the deed. And that gap is where most of the news happens. Yeah. <laughs> it, it creates a huge market for gossip, basically. And British politics in the last month has been dominated by gossip. Something that, Helen, you mentioned earlier was that approval ratings work differently in the UK than they work in the US. 
And I was looking at YouGov data in the UK, and the most popular politician in the nation is Ed Balls. And only 35% of Brits have a positive view of him. That's lower than Biden. That's lower than Trump ever was. But he's the most popular politician in the country. He's actually a former politician as well. Do you know why he's the most popular politician? <laughs> because he's no longer relevant. I did a little bit of research. No, because he was on he was on a show. Well, ours is called Strictly Come Dancing. What's your one called? Oh, you know the ballroom dancing. Dancing show. with the stars. Yeah, so he was on Dancing with the Stars. That's the only reason. He's not a politician. He's a dancer. He was a, he was a politician, to be clear. <laughs> Even so. The 35% number is the one that struck me. What is it about the British public or the way that British politics works that almost no matter what, you just don't approve of your politicians? I think it, it is the consequence of being, or a significant part of it is the consequence of having a, a parliamentary um, democracy that's very much centred on the parties. And although obviously they are led by individuals, they're not presidents. And they, they're never in the position where they're being, you know, as American presidents are simultaneously head of government and head of state. So I think that that means that there's just, in some sense, a kind of like lack of respect that's baked in there from the the start, the knowledge that they're going to do their thing for a while as um, party leader and the ones who are successful as um, prime minister. You're going to like some of it, you're going to dislike some of it, and then it's going to end probably badly and somebody else is going to come on and do it instead. So I just don't think there's ever the same emotional investment in individuals in the same way as there is in a presidential system. Now, I think that there's, you know, like moments in or part of the Corbyn phenomenon in a way was kind of like tapping into something that was a bit more about the cult of personality. And I think that Johnson tried for the cult of personality, but I think he was actually did it in some sense more effectively when he was mayor of London than ever he's been as leader of the Conservative Party. So I think my answer is is that there's just less space for the cult of personality and perhaps a culture that anyway discourages it because there's more sense of these things happen, people rise, people fall. But it's not always the case that they never have high approval ratings. Tony Blair had stratospheric approval ratings. After the death of Princess Diana, my memory is his approval ratings were similar to... George W. Bush after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Theresa May, even in the early part of her premiership, had very high approval ratings. It's fickle. I mean, it's fickle in the States too. Maybe it's more fickle here, partly because the reasons Helen suggested, it's it's much more randomly cyclical. You know, there's not a rhythm to it. There's not a four-year rhythm to it. And the campaigns are, are erratic. You don't know when they're going to be. You don't know how long they're going to last. So there's a sort of disincentive to invest too much in these people because they might not be around for that long. But there are periods for sure where, including with Blair, presidential style leadership. And it's, you know, I think it's significant. It was the death of Princess Diana that produced this particular moment that I remember, where he seemed to have almost universal approval. It was a very presidential moment. British politics is not immune to that by any means. You mentioned not knowing how long people will be around or how long things will last. From where you sit, does it seem like Boris Johnson will last much longer? The answer to this can kind of a bit depend on a on a weekly basis. And as part of this all this up and down. My inclination is is that he quite possibly can survive. Um, certainly the immediate crisis around Partygate, just because it's been so attracted now. 
And I think each time a, a pressure point has has built up, it's fallen away and another one could come. I think that it's just lost some urgency to it. Having said that, I think that there's a possibility of things taking a, a different turn, which would be in May of this year, there are local elections. If the Conservatives were to do extremely badly in, or even just very badly in those elections, I think that the restlessness within the Parliamentary Conservative Party could well rise again. And I think the thing that really just makes it difficult for him to stabilise his premiership is is that he just hasn't been able to construct an operation around him that exudes even kind of like basic competence about a decision-making structure to support him that lasts for any period of time. And so the numbers of staff that have come and gone out of number 10 during his premiership is really very um, high. So I think that issue is the core of his liability rather than the parties, even though the parties could have been. It's just that the moment just went on too long. But there is a connection between the two because the person who's essentially put the party gate story into the public sphere is is Dominic Cummings, the man who did run his number 10 operation and then with whom he and um, his wife bitterly fallen out. And Dominic Cummings is absolutely determined to bring Boris Johnson down before the next general election. Again, at the risk of stating the obvious, there is a disanalogy with the American case here, which is that if Johnson goes, you don't know who will succeed him. And that changes the incentive structure for the people who might get rid of him. Because the Conservative Party would be pretty divided on that question. There are various candidates, but there's no one that would command obvious assent, it would be pretty bitter. So that would give, I think, some of those who might get rid of him pause. I also, one of the reasons I've thought for a while he might well survive is that it would set a precedent to get rid of him. There wouldn't be, I mean, politicians who've been driven out, Theresa May, uh, Margaret Thatcher and others, Tony Blair, it's not by scandal. It's by what you might call a, a deeper, more structural crisis around policy making and the direction of travel of the government. This is straightforward scandal. There may be other incentives and reasons why people want him gone, but it would be the parties that did for him. And if I was a member of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, I'd be a little nervous about creating the precedent that this kind of new cycle agenda could get rid of a prime minister. And if I was Boris Johnson, and I'm sure he does do this when he speaks to them one-on-one, he reminds them that to get rid of him is to hand a victory to Dominic Cummings. And that also sets a kind of precedent for embittered former aides, you know, chiefs of staff deciding it's up to them whether the guy who fired them is allowed to carry on in office. And for all of these reasons, I've felt for a while now that he will probably survive, certainly for the next few months, he might be done by election results. The police still have to decide what fines, if any, he has to pay for his misdemeanours. But talk about getting rid of him is a lot easier than the deed. So if I had to put money on it, I'd say he'd still be here in the summer. So that's some of the specifics surrounding the scandal. But the broader context for all of this is COVID, in part. And because the U.S. and U.K., and particularly the American right and the British right, have diverged so much on this, I'm curious for your thoughts on why that's been the case. The American right has argued for most of the pandemic against stringent COVID measures. But as you mentioned, Boris Johnson was all for them, was pretty earnest in promoting them. Obviously, he didn't necessarily follow them, but in front of the cameras, as you said, he was very different from Donald Trump. 
Why do you think the two approaches diverged to the degree that they did? I don't think he was all for them. I think part of his appeal, actually, that he was very reluctantly for them. He gave quite a good impression of someone who was doing it as a last resort. And therefore, that's why he took it so seriously. You know, his instincts were, I think, in line with many on the right, that this is something that you should resist at all costs. But in the end, as it were, the responsibility of office meant that he did it. And I think for a long time, despite the fact that Britain doesn't have a great record through the COVID crisis of preventing illness and death, that was a big part of his appeal with the public, that he was actually in line with, I would have thought, majority opinion, which was quite suspicious of people who were very enthusiastic lockdowners. And that includes a lot of members of the Labour Party, including possibly the leadership. But also the British public had by no means locked down sceptics. There's always a strong majority of opinion in favour of restrictions. And Johnson, I thought, struck a chord. And that's why this scandal has been so toxic for his brand, because that's just been blown up. Although, of course, the experiences have been pretty different ultimately, right? So at the very beginning of the pandemic, the Trump administration had this certain number of days to stop the spread, somewhat of a lockdown, but mostly businesses have been open. You can do what you want. It's ultimately up to you to make decisions and and localities to make decisions about what risks you're willing to take during the pandemic. The UK didn't leave that up to the Brits to decide. It had a much more stringent program. For two countries that often consider themselves somewhat similar, why do you think that approach has been so different? I think that there's there's one thing that's really clearly different, though it's got a different sort of a peculiar British variant, is is we're not a federal country. So it, nobody in this here would expect that anybody other than the in principle the UK government would be dealing with a, a health emergency. There was nothing that was the equivalent of this is the extreme red state response um, and this is the extreme blue state response. I think the other thing you have to bear in mind, Galen, is is that. At the centre of this crisis in the, or this emergency in the UK, and I, and I generally mean the, the UK, has been the health service, the National Health Service. And this has been the argument that has been used pretty much every time for lockdown. I think, I think we had three slogans in the first lockdown. I can't remember what they all were, but I do remember protect the NHS. And when there was a lot of pressure, to some extent, I think Johnson was trying to resist about the timing of the second lockdown, the extent of it, and then certainly the third lockdown. The thing that seems to have sort of pushed him into the lockdown position was we can't have a situation where the NHS is on the point of um, collapse and having to turn people who are infectious away um, in the, the, the street. So the centre-right party, the Conservative Party in this country is absolutely bound up with the politics of the NHS. It's, a, it's an issue that causes them quite some difficulty. It's the one issue where Labour's had a clear structural advantage over the years. But the idea that there could be a crisis of the NHS of that magnitude on the Conservative Party's watch, that would be the stuff of their absolute political nightmares. So they, they had to stay away from that. They had to stay in, in the centre ground. And centre ground um, was protect the NHS, as David said, do lockdown, but don't do it in ways that make it look that you're enthusiastic about it in any way or make it look like you want to use it for some more general purpose of establishing more state control. I was going to say exactly the same. We have a National Health Service and you don't, and that partly creates capacity. So the National Health Service, it, it means the government is able to do things nationally, including a successful early and quick vaccine rollout programme. But also, if you just want an illustration of the difference, Trump got COVID, Johnson got COVID, Johnson nearly died of it. Trump 
We don't know, but we suspect he didn't. But Johnson's response to his COVID experience when he was taken into a National Health Service hospital was to come out and, and give a speech, a, an address in which he talked about the National Health Service as the beating heart of the nation powered by love and fully embraced his personal experience as emblematic of the centrality of the NHS to British politics. Very hard to imagine a you know, a Trump-like president doing that, never mind the circumstances. And it creates a completely different dynamic around this. There are people in the Conservative Party who don't think like that and would like to change the role that the NHS plays in our politics, but they are in the minority. And rhetorically, no Conservative politician yet in a leadership position has gone down that route. And it makes all the difference. Recently in the U.S., governors now in blue states have been rolling back mask mandates. And it appears that from the polling that a majority of Americans want to move on from COVID restrictions. Things that were once upon a time popular are no longer popular, including certain vaccine mandates, requirements for jobs and so on. Is there a similar sentiment in the U.K. about, you know, COVID is over, it's time to move on, we don't want any more restrictions and is there any sense that the country went too far in terms of lockdowns? I think there's definitely considerable movement from where things were six months ago and just before Omicron in a way where there was quite a bit of criticism about how quickly most of the restrictions in England had been removed because Johnson announced what he called, I think it was Freedom Day sometime in like July of last year, when almost all the restrictions on how you live daily life anyway other than the isolation requirements, um, were removed. And I think it, it was a big moment when there was the possibility, clearly, that Johnson was, so to speak, going to cancel Christmas again, to use the language that was adopted over here, and we were all going to be confined back in our houses and not able to meet our families. And for maybe 24 hours or so, it seemed like he was leaning in that direction. And then he seems to have been pulled back from it by a cabinet rebellion, or at least part of his cabinet rebellion, and I think given what's happened since um, Christmas and there hasn't been a significant increase in hospitalisation, that that was seen now as the right decision. And I, I think you can now see a fairly clear contrast if you make a different comparison between what's going on in Britain and what's going on in some other European countries in relation to mandates, including you know, like vaccine mandates. If you compare the position that Italy has got to under Draghi, which has become very fierce, both about the practical policies about vaccine mandates and about the kind of language that Draghi's using. That's a long way removed now from where we are in Britain. And I think it would take another really seismic development in the COVID crisis for Britain to retreat back into the lockdown and mandate world. And on your question about public opinion, I mean, it's hard to know, but I think politicians, including Conservative politicians, have been surprised over the last two years by the public's appetite for lockdown. I mean, look, the restrictions are all, have always polled as chiming with the views of the majority. Sometimes the majority have wanted to go further. And when Johnson, late last year, early this, resisted the advice of some of his scientific advisers that a stricter lockdown was needed, he was also going against opinion polling, which suggested the public still had an appetite for it, or at least that's how they responded to those questions. Who knows what it really means. And it is part of the reason his position is not as disastrously weak as Partygate might have you believe. He he believes that he made a big call right and that Britain is moving on now because we didn't enter the lockdown that was suggested to him by his advisers. 
And I suspect the public are broadly, again, sympathetic to that in the same way I think they were sympathetic to reluctant lockdowns. Even if it goes against what polling was saying, I think most people would now feel that Johnson's response over the last two to three months, fudged though it was, you know, incoherent though it was, has probably produced an outcome that most people are comfortable with. If it hadn't, he would be in a much weaker position now. In fact, I suspect he would be finished. If that call had gone wrong, um, or if he'd had to lock down later, say he'd resisted over Christmas and then come January, he'd had to toughen up the rules again, he would probably be finished with the parliamentary party. But he, he isn't, and part of the reason is that. I think related, of course, to the pandemic, there's a general narrative now in the United States that we've entered something of a malaise. There are high levels of disapproval with the president, disapproval with the direction of the country, the state of the economy, and even polls about happiness in people's own personal lives show an uptick in unhappiness. And there are other measures that will suggest that parts of society are frustrated, increases in crime, inflation, things like that. Is there something similar happening in the United Kingdom, or is this a specific American response to the pandemic? <laughs> Helen, how unhappy do you think people are? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my sense is, just from like observing from this side of the Atlantic, what I pick up from what's going on on your side of the Atlantic, there isn't that same feel to the countries and politics. In part, I think, maybe because there's nothing that's the equivalent of the end of Trump and the arrival of Biden as a, as a moment of hope for many million Americans, obviously not for all Americans. And then the Biden presidency, for reasons that we know, has turned out to be quite complicated, should we just say, and plenty of food for disappointment. I think that what is true, and you could see this in the autumn before Omicron arrived, uh, and Omicron arrived here like in early December, was a sense that the economic recovery was going to be quite difficult. The fears about inflation were certainly being expressed. That there was a sense, uh, you could particularly feel it in like London, in, I'd say in, in November, of the city finally coming back to life, lots of people going out, being outside, doing the kinds of things of going out to dinner, go to theatre, etc., rest films that they were doing before. But this sense that, okay, as we economically recover, then we bring these economic problems with us, particularly the fear of inflation. And that was accentuated by the energy situation. And what we've got in this country is a an immediate post-present tense problem coming in April when the energy caps on gas and electricity bills are being removed or they're going to be changed anyway. And so there is going to be a big hit to many households' incomes via that change. And I think you can sense a sense of fear around over this issue in particular and the sense of like what's going to happen next. So that in one sense, the better we do with the pandemic, the more we go back to the problems of economic recovery. So in one sense, it becomes like it's one or the other. I think one of the things you mentioned isn't really analogous. That's anxiety about rising crime. I mean, there is anxiety about rising crime in the UK. It's not gun crime, obviously. I mean, there is a lot of anxiety about knife crime. That gets quite a lot of coverage. The the head of the police force uh, has just resigned, partly because of a, a sense that um, the police are out of control in various ways and, and need reform that hasn't happened. But that issue is not mobilised in the same way, from my understanding, from outside of the US. It doesn't have the kind of ability to really destabilise politics at the moment anyway in the UK as it does there. And 
you know, that sense that things are falling apart. I don't think Britain feels like a country where people believe things are falling apart. I'd say that the area where there is unquestionably growing unhappiness is among younger people who have borne the brunt of the pandemic in many ways, particularly those in, many of them in you know, higher education, in debt, you know, looking at a pretty unfavourable job market and so on. And there's a lot of evidence that this is having a knock-on effect on mental health. It doesn't come to the surface of politics on the whole, not least because politics is still, electoral politics is still dominated by older voters and their interests. But I would be surprised if that doesn't get worse over time and become more of a challenge for for British politicians. But you know, it's impossible to know from the outside. But what, what I read about American politics and that sense, you know, we don't have a, is there a second civil war coming debate going on in this country, uh, you know, we've had a civil war too. It was longer ago, but the, unless I've missed it, Helen, I haven't seen anyone saying that. And uh, you know, you, you've you've had that whole round. There isn't the end of democracy discourse here in quite the same way. You know, ten years to save democracy in this country, it tends to be twenty-four hours to save the NHS. I would say our politics is currently less apocalyptic than yours. Well. I'm happy for you. <laughs> That's good news. <laughs> well, if the um, apocalypse comes, you can say we were complacent. Um, before we wrap up, I want to look back at some of the questions that you've contended with during your tenure at Talking Politics. But first... You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Your podcast, Talking Politics, began during the heat of the Brexit referendum and the 2016 U.S. presidential campaigns. Of course, those resulted in a win for Brexit and a win for Trump, both of which felt like significant political upsets, and perhaps paradigm shifts. So now, five years later, as you think about wrapping up your podcast that started amidst all of that, do those two events appear as consequential as they felt at the time? I mean, what, you know, one of the things we tried to do throughout this is, so our original slogan was Corbyn, Brexit, Trump. So in Britain, the three really surprising things that happened. In many ways, Corbyn was the most surprising of all and the most disastrous of all. But Brexit and Trump are not the same thing. You know, we spent quite a lot of time trying to disaggregate them and take them seriously on their own terms. Brexit still feels extremely consequential, has nowhere near played out. It doesn't have the same political heat around it. And the most intense period of our podcasting was sort of mid-late 2019, when there was real chaos, but also just this sort of mind-melding stalemate in British politics. We had the opportunity to talk during that. Yeah, I, rem I remember those days before yeah, COVID. Yeah, hysteria and inertia came together. It was like stagflation. It was just these two things came together in a way that just made your head explode. Um, and that's gone. And it's quite hard to recapture it. But the, you know, the underlying 
issues and consequences of, of a huge shift in British politics, including a huge, I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about this, a huge constitutional shift, which hasn't by any means resolved the questions that it raised, including questions about the future of the United Kingdom. We spent a lot of time talking about that. You know, is the UK sustainable? We spent quite a lot of time talking about whether the euro was sustainable. Those questions are very, very far from being resolved. And Brexit is both symptomatic of those questions as well as causal of some of them. And that, to me, is very different from the Trump phenomenon, which also is symptomatic of many things as well as causing many things. But it it has a different rhythm to it, it has a different time frame to it. I mean, there's another question about Trump and Trump coming back, which is not the same uh, with Brexit. But I would say, just speaking for myself, I still spend a lot more time thinking about the long-term consequences of Brexit than I do about the long-term consequences of Trump. Fair enough. I largely agree with that. I mean, I would just add on the Brexit front that the place where this is going to play out quite intensely over the next few months is in relation to Northern Ireland. And it gets to the heart in now, I think, of the governance of Northern Ireland itself and the, the future of um, power sharing there. And then that has the possibility of raising questions about the future of the position of Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland will play a significant part in then shaping what the future of the rest of the UK's relationship with the the European Union is. The Trump thing I think is harder in some sense to think about, partly because I think that we have to remember that at the end of all that, at the end of that presidency, he still won really a remarkable number of votes. And so that that is part of the domestic story of the Trump presidency too, as well as the way that it just completely imploded at the end. And It's quite difficult, I think, to imagine Joe Biden being president of the United States without Donald Trump. So it seems to me in in some part that the Biden story, I don't mean it's a continuity Trump story because he's he's very different, but he only exists in some sense as president because of Donald Trump. So it seems to me that Trump wasn't some aberration that happened and then you sort of sealed it off and moved on. Is, Is what came next is so fundamentally, I think, shaped by the Trump presidency itself. And then I think if you think about it in um, in foreign policy terms, in, in geopolitical terms, we can see that Biden hasn't actually done things that are that different, I think, than what Trump did. You know, he has wanted to draw a line under a clear line under the United States war in Afghanistan. He hasn't reset the China relationship. He's not been able to get Iran back to the negotiating table in a really serious... I know that the talks are going on, but he's not been able to... It doesn't look at the moment like he's going to be able to get a new Iran nuclear deal. All the tensions within NATO around issues about Russia and Russian gas, the position of Ukraine, we know have been very much um, to the fore. So I think that in geopolitical terms, Trump looks more like a symptom of something that's much more structural than just about himself. And in that sense, we're still living in the world that Trump's turn made geopolitically, even though, as I say, I I don't think in some sense it's actually about him. To say one more thing, again, it's sort of obvious, but Brexit was a referendum. There could have been a second referendum, but actually politically it would have been impossible. And a referendum is a one-off event. It's not cyclical. It's not you have the Brexit referendum and then four years later you see what you feel about it and then four years after that. Trump, Biden, Trump is an outlier in many ways, but it's explicable in the sort of language and understanding of electoral politics with its rhythms and its cycles, the continuities and the breaks, all of that. It's To me, a lot of it is still familiar. 
Brexit is a one-off. It set the terms for British politics for a generation or more. It's a fundamental constitutional change, which the United States has not had. I don't know what the analogy would be for something on which there was a popular vote, which changed the way that America does its politics. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe were there to be a change in the role of the Supreme Court, maybe if there were to be, you know, a change in the Constitution. But that doesn't happen in your politics. And we we went through that. And it's it's fundamentally different. It's all electoral politics, but referendum politics and general elections are just not the same. One area where there was overlap, of course, as you've mentioned, there are a lot of differences, is maybe the way that they helped realign the parties in the sense that the Republican Party attracted more non-college educated voters, fewer suburban, urban, college educated voters, things like that. You saw similar patterns in how people voted to either remain in or leave the European Union. I mean, do you think the past five years has produced some sort of durable realignment for conservative and liberal parties in the UK and in the United States? Well, I mean, I think there's definitely been some kind of realignment in a number of countries. And I'd say that the Britain and the United States are where it's happened most clearly, perhaps, where the party of the right has, to use class language, increased the number of working class voters that it attracts. I think the difference in the UK's case is, is that what we saw with the Conservative victory in the 2019 general election was that they were able to use those votes to add to their existing coalition. They didn't actually, in practice, despite a lot of fears that were articulated about this, then lose a significant chunk of Remain voters, Conservative Remain voters, either to the Labour Party or to the Liberal Democrats. So the Conservative Party was turning in an an electoral performance in, in 2019 that it hadn't seen since decades. You can't really say the same, I think, about the Republican Party in the United States, even in the 2016 election and the victories that it had there, not least because actually in popular vote terms, as we know, that the Democrats did better in the presidential election. Another thing that sort of sets them apart is is that there's nothing like the Scottish question for the Democrats in terms of being able to recover from the difficulties that they've got themselves into in 2016. Whereas the fact that Labour has largely been wiped out in Scotland is a real significant impediment to the Labour Party taking power, certainly as a majority party for the foreseeable future in the United Kingdom. So even if Labour were to find a way, and I think he's certainly trying under Keir Starmer, to peel back those voters that were added by the Conservatives to their electoral coalition in, in December of 2019, it is still going to struggle to make a breakthrough. Yeah, I mean, in the period we've been doing our podcast, we've seen in British politics, as part of this realignment, the rise and fall of parties other than the two main parties. I mean, the Brexit party doesn't exist anymore, but for, you know, really shaped British politics during the Brexit period. As Helen said, the Scottish Nationalist Party is a hugely significant player in this. It doesn't all happen within the parties. It spills out. The two main parties are constantly having to watch their backs it's it's much more European than it is American in that sense, even though we have a first-past-the-post system. We recorded one of our last podcasts today about France. The collapse of the traditional party structure in France is more extreme than anything that we've seen here. But, you know, there are echoes of you know, some of that volatility in our basic party structures. We still have the two main parties, but they have a real sense that things could fall apart, which I don't think holds 
in the case of the United States, where I'd say that it is analogous, you touched on it, you know, politics in Britain, as in parts of Europe, as in the United States, it turns on these divisions that we weren't conscious of 10, 15 years ago, one of which is between college graduates and people who haven't been to college. And that's true of our politics too. The electoral map, the electoral map of Brexit was university towns versus the rest. The electoral map of where Labour wins can be mapped onto sort of networks of higher education. I don't think that's changing anytime soon. It, it poses problems for the, you know, the parties of the workers, which have become the parties of the graduates, have to build coalitions because there aren't yet enough graduates to win with that constituency entirely, because the other division is age, older versus younger, and Boris Johnson is prime minister because older non-college educated voters voted for his party because they also tended to vote for Brexit. And that shift is profound and the parties are, are reacting to it, they are not driving it. And it is comparable across your politics and ours. So a final question here to wrap up on, which maybe is a little unfair because it's a big question and it's a big unknown, but a significant unknown facing our two nations in this moment is Ukraine and a potential Russian invasion. And I'm not going to ask you whether or not Russia is going to invade. I'm sure you don't know. I don't know either. I think for our purposes, the question that this brings up is how united is the quote unquote West after Trump, after Brexit? Does it still seem like the United States and NATO and the sort of quote unquote Western alliance is as strong as it once was? Is it as credible as it once was? Is there just a, a more interest in isolationism and less interest in foreign intervention? Well, I mean, I think that the problems of NATO are very long-standing. I think that in some sense that they go back to its beginnings. And I think that it rode out those differences during the, the Cold War. And it, it rode out the tensions between the European project, if you like, as it then was, and NATO, NATO, you know, like providing essentially external security for the European community. But I, I don't think that NATO has ever got to grips or NATO and the European Union has ever got to grips with what the post-Cold War world has looked like. And in that sense, I think that the Ukrainian crisis has been a, a long time coming. I don't think that it's the differences that have emerged between our country's politics, European countries' politics over the last five or six years that can explain the underlying disunity that now exists in NATO. As I say, I think it's much more um, structural than that and what it actually means to give security guarantees to these states that have borders with Russia. I mean, I think what we could say about recent weeks is, is that NATO can still put on a, a show, if you like, of rhetorical unity, that there's not the same kinds of divisions that were exposed by the withdrawal from Afghanistan last um, summer, where you obviously had fierce criticism being directed at Washington from European capitals. But I still think that these are pretty profound differences that we're, we're seeing between NATO states, not least, obviously, I mean, if you just wanted to, you know, like polarise it, the position of Poland compared to the position of France, that France still wants to think in terms of a, a European strategic autonomy and for the countries that um, have borders with Russia, an American guarantee will always come first. I don't have much to add to that, except I suppose, I think this concurs with what Helen was saying, I think the, the biggest divisions are within Europe, rather than, I mean, there are, of course, there always have been transatlantic divisions, but the, the points of tension, the points of real difficulty are likely to come out 
within Europe. This is a, a long-standing set of challenges, and it, and it has a long way to go. I don't really know what people mean, you know, when they talk about the unity of the West. It's one of those things. It's a bit like Boris Johnson. There's a lot of talk about it. There's a big gap between the talk about the West falling apart and it actually happening. But there are deep political, structural, strategic challenges for the member states of the European Union to face in the coming years. And in a way, the you know the pandemic has been a hiatus. The pandemic has put a lot of things on hold. And this year, next year, those things are going to come back. Just briefly, I think one thing that we saw with Trump's presidency and, of course, with Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan is that there is a stronger desire for a bit of isolationism in the United States, less foreign intervention. It isn't clear that there's one American party now that's all for the kinds of interventions that might have once been proposed. Is that specific to the United States or is that a sort of Western phenomenon post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan in terms of not wanting to engage in these kinds of foreign entanglements? I don't think there's any West European country, and I'm including Germany as being part of West European country here, that wants to send soldiers to fight for Ukraine's independence. I think that that's one of the things that's going on in, in some sense in this crisis that's a bit odd, because if the issue is about Putin saying, oh, Ukraine can't join NATO, well, Ukraine isn't going to join NATO because there aren't members of NATO outside the immediate countries that have borders with Russia who can't deal with this problem themselves um, that are willing to make sacrifices in order to defend Ukraine's independence. I think if you go back a bit further and you go back to the, the Syrian crisis, I think there's a big moment in 2013 that leads essentially to uh, Obama not following through on his red lines and uh, responding to that chemical weapons attack. Um, that the Assad regime engaged in is, is what was the prelude to Obama's decision. It was the British Parliament basically making it clear to David Cameron that they weren't willing to support British military action in that case, that post-Iraq, and I think in some cases it actually goes back further than that, and I'd say in the US case, the tolerance for these things probably runs from 9-11 to Iraq because the, the intolerance was there as a product of um, the Vietnam War. Citizens in Western democracies do not want to see lots of people, lots of soldiers dying in foreign wars. And that is a constraint on the on the foreign policies that can be pursued by their governments. All right. Well, let's leave things there. Thank you so much for joining me and thank you for helping us all understand the world a little bit better over the past six years with your Talking Politics podcast. David Runciman and Helen Thompson are professors at the University of Cambridge. Thank you so much. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks for good. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary Curtis is on audio editing. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.